Um, we are in the book of Romans again for over a year now. And uh, I wanted to quickly remind you where we've been because we are we're really getting close to moving out of this third point of our outline. We have seen sin. Well, let me back up. The theme of the book of Romans, we said, was how to be right with God. And in our outline, we've seen sin, which showed us the need for being right with God and that everybody is born a sinner. There's none righteous, no, not one. And that brought us to the second point, which is justification by faith, which is the only means for being right with God. And after we see that we're right with God, we get to see the blessings, the results of being right with God. And that was from chapter 5, verse 1, which 5.1 is a great verse too. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. So starting with that proclamation and leading up to this crescendo that we're going to start looking at today, at the end of chapter 8, we've seen blessings, the results of being right with God. And I want to share with you guys... I just finished listening to a book. Anybody ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? Yeah, last part of or the second half of the 20th century, he was kind of the evangelical voice for apologetics, reason, uh, culture. And I've heard of him. So many of the people who have influenced me were influenced by Francis Schaeffer. So I just recently uh, listened to his kind of landmark book. It's called How Should We Then Live? And I'm not real sure how I haven't been through this book before because it was pretty doggone good. It's great. But the very question of the title, How Then, How Should We Then Live, has just been haunting me since I, since I started listening to this book. And it haunts me even more, that question, how should we then live? How should we as Christians live? How should we be living? That question just keeps turning over like a dryer in my head. Just, ba-dum, ba-dum. I, just, I just keep thinking, well, how should I be living as a Christian? And as I've studied for this, I, I, I came across this. This is a fantastic book, by the way, Future Grace by John Piper. Um, whether you like John Piper or not, this book is fantastic. And as I've thought about this question, how should we live? How should we then live? I have come to see more and more that our living is so dictated by our thinking. And Piper points this out as at the beginning of this book. Let me read this passage in this book. Alistair McGrath the Oxford theologian and penetrating observer of American evangelicalism describes a crisis of spirituality in American evangelicalism. He says that evangelicalism, particularly American evangelicalism, is failing the church. And here's McGrath's quote. Evangelicals have done a superb job of evangelizing people, bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, but they are failing to provide believers with approaches to living that keep them going and growing in spiritual relationship with Him. Many start the life of faith with great enthusiasm, only to discover themselves in difficulty shortly afterward. Their high hopes and good intentions seem to fade away. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh proves weak. People need support to keep them going when the enthusiasm fades. End of quote. Can I get an amen? Then Piper continues here and he says, My aim and prayer is that this book will give that kind of support and will provide an approach to living that will keep believers going and growing. It has been forged in the furnace of pastoral ministry where the mingled fires of suffering and ecstasy make every joy deeper and every burden lighter. It is the fruit of unremitting meditation on the Word of God in relation to what David Pallinson calls the existential and situational realities of human experiences in the trenches of life. One more paragraph. The book has grown out of the conviction that behind most wrong living is wrong thinking. Jesus calls us, for example, to a radical purity. But I find that many Christians have no categories for thinking clearly about the commands and warnings and promises of Jesus. When He says that we should pluck out our lusting eye, He backs it up with a warning. It is better for you 
that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's Matthew 5.29. Threats of going to hell because of lust are simply not the way contemporary Christians usually talk or think. This is not because such warnings aren't in the Bible, but because we don't know how to fit them together with other thoughts about grace and faith and eternal security. We nullify the force of Jesus' words, listen, because our conceptual framework is disfigured. Our Christian living is lamed by sub-Christian thinking about living. Two questions I want to ask you as we begin this morning. How are you living and how are you thinking? And what we're going to look at this morning, I hope and pray with all earnestness, I pray that it would radically alter the way that we think and as a result, radically alter the way that we live. Would you stand with us as we read the Bible? We're going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 again. We'll read it as we began. But we're going to read it again. And we're going to stand and just be soaked by this shower of blessings. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray. God, what shall we say to these things? I sincerely, wholeheartedly, God, pray that what is heard today is not the words of a man. God, I pray that I would be completely transparent in this process and that people would see you and your word and your power and God, that we would all have our thinking changed. And as a result of the power of Your Holy Spirit speaking Your Word into our lives, God, that we would all have the way that we live changed today for Your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. just don't even know. (laughs) I don't know. What do you do with this? What do you do with all of this? I've wrestled with it all week. How in the world? I don't have a big enough shovel. I don't have a big enough dump truck. I don't have an ocean big enough to explain what in the world God is saying to us here. But we're going to try. And we're going to start in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things... If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if you've been with us through the book of Romans, you're probably used to these passages starting with what word? For. So many times we've started a message, we've started a passage, and it's been the word for. Well, that's not the case today. It's not for that we're going to look at to start out with. Our first phrase, it's not a word, I don't guess is not for. It is, what then shall we say? And it's like Paul is saying, I just don't even know how to address this. I feel like Paul is saying what I just expressed. I don't know what else to say. But he he does say some more stuff. 
quite a bit of stuff actually. But here in context, he's just kind of standing slack-jawed, weak-kneed saying, can you believe this? What can we say about it? And I like that he's not just involving himself, but he's drawing his readers in and he's saying, what then shall we? What shall we say to these things? It's like what we looked at last week on Covenant Sunday. The Christian life is a community-based life. And what is true for one is true for all. So what shall we say to these things? Paul answers this question and ends this verse by beginning a series of six questions. And we'll look at two of those questions today. And the first question that he answers his question with is... If God is for us, who can be against us? Now let's dig into that. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now we've seen that God is working all things together for our good if we love Him and are called according to His purposes. And we've seen that He set His love on us in foreknowledge before the foundation of the world, and that if He foreknew us, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And if He predestined us, He called us. And if He called us, He justified us. And if He justified us, He also glorified us. So in light of all of that, would you say that God is for us? The answer is yes. God is on our side as Christians. And let me, let, me, let me carve out something here. Let me not give a false sense of security to unbelievers here this morning. And let me not be rude or mean, but let me tell you, these promises are not for you. They can be. They're available to you. But if you are in unbelief, if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, these promises are not for you. And I'm not going to apologize for that. But I will extend the offer and say, listen to this. Because this will change your life. And we'll talk about how you can receive this gift at the end of the message. But let me not lull you into false assurance or comfort. And you say, well, good, God's for me. If you have not received Jesus Christ as Savior, if you have not seen Him as the sufficient sacrifice for your personal sins, these promises are not for you. I think that's important to note. So, as believers, is God for us? Is He on our side? Is He in our corner? Is He acting on our behalf? And man, from what we just heard, it sure does sound like it. So Paul asks, if this is so, if the all-powerful God of the universe is for us, then what? Then who can be against us? Now, we might be tempted to quickly answer this and say, well... Nobody, right? I mean, that's our thought, right? Who can be against us? First of all, let me jump to something which is a few verses up that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, probably, hopefully. Who can be against us? Go to verses 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like somebody's against somebody here. And the somebody that they're against is we. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Now note one thing in these verses that I just read, 35 and 36. Paul doesn't say these things won't happen. What things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, being killed all the day long, sheep to be slaughtered. Now, now plug those things into the question, who can be against us? Can tribulation be against us? Seems like it can be. Distress? Uh, yeah. Famine? I think famine would be up against me if I was in it. Nakedness? We won't go there. Danger? Sword? Being killed all the day long? Sheep to be slaughtered? It sounds to me, when I read that, that all of these things are against us. 
and that they would be against us if we were in them. And let me tell you something, all you who are at ease in Zion in America, all over the world, our brothers and sisters are going through these very things. Tell them, well, what could be against you? Born again AIDS orphan in Africa, living in a garbage dump with no medical care. Be warmed and filled, little buddy. You say, well, yeah, it's tough for them. But listen, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. God has so arranged the body that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So as our brothers and sisters across the globe are being killed and going hungry and are suffering, are we not suffering too? The answer is yes, they are. And yes, we are as a result. So who can be against us if God is for us? Seems like a lot of people, a lot of things could be against us. Seems like the devil would and could be against us, right? Evil people? I think they could be against us. Tyrannical governments and regimes? Again, seems like they could. So what in the world is Paul saying here? If God is for us, who can be against us? All of these things and people? Doesn't seem like he's saying that the answer is all these things and people can be against us from the tone that the rest of the passage, it sounds really triumphant. And didn't we just sing earlier, and if our God is for us, then who can stand against us? Like in a victorious tone? We did. And we should. Because in this question, Paul is saying, no one, nothing can be against us, which means that ultimately, nothing and no one will prevail against us in the end. He is not saying we won't have enemies or trials or problems or that your best life is now. He is simply reiterating what he was saying in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God is causing all things to work together for our good. Even the bad things, even the evil things, even the failing things. All things are ultimately working for our good. Now I want you to get a hold of that. Even our enemies are ultimately working for our good. What was it Joseph said to his brothers? You meant it for evil. And let me tell you what, Joseph spent some dark days being sold into slavery, being accused of rape, several years in a deep, dark dungeon of a jail, being forgotten until he's promoted to prime minister of Egypt and saves the world, basically. And his statement to his brothers was, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Your sins, your failings, your fallings, the opposition you meet. Satan, the world, the flesh, they mean it for evil, but God is causing even those things to work together for our good. All things work together for our good. Even our enemies, even our failures are working together for our good. Did you hear that? when you're beating yourself up and kicking yourself and calling yourself a jerk and I can't believe I did that, God is using even that to work together for your good. Mm. So we will have friction and disappointment and opposition and God is busy in the midst of it to make us better and to work according to His purposes. So ultimately, who can be against us? Nobody. Nothing. Period. God is for us. If God is for us, which really means since God is for us, 
What then shall we say to these things? Since God is for us, since God is working all things together for our good, who can come out on top against us? And the plain answer is nobody can. Nothing can. Never, not ever. And I want you to remember that the next time you're in the midst of a trial, you're in the midst of a temptation, the next time you fail, the next time you face opposition, I want you to look it square in the face and I want you to ask this question, who can be against me and prevail? What can be against me and prevail? Nobody can, nothing can, never. God is always going to triumph. And God is for us. God is for us. What do you say to that? When you stub your toe and jump around cussing like a sailor? Because cussing's bad, y'all. But seriously, something as minor as that, man, we'll beat ourselves up for six weeks about it. Man, it was six weeks ago. I stubbed my toe and cussed like a sailor. God must be mad at me. I'll say it again, Christian. God is not mad at you. He poured His wrath out on Jesus. Let me not get ahead of myself. We could stop at verse 31 and be content. I mean, really. You need more? Okay, I'll give you more. There's so much more. Let's look at verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So we've seen that God is for us, and as such, no one or nothing can stand against us. And that's wonderful, for sure. More wonderful than we can understand, but it doesn't stop there. This verse starts by mentioning He, and it is obviously referring back to the God who is for us from the previous verse. So what about He? How does this verse describe God? It describes God as He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. (laughs) Do you want to know how much God loves you, Christian? Do you want to know what God did to make a way for you to come to Him, non-Christian? God, the all-powerful Creator of the universe, took a course of action that had Him do something beyond imagination. But it was not without precedence. I want you to take a walk with me back into Genesis. Most of you have probably heard the story of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, right? Well, actually, initially, Father Abraham did not have many sons. He had zero sons, and he was pushing a hundred. One hundred. And his wife, who had not had any children, was ninety. Father Abraham had nary sons. And nary sons had Father Abraham. Now listen to this. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 22, I'm going to read 14 verses because I need you to hear the narrative. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now get ready. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So that they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! 
And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know now that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham and Sarah had been given Isaac, born to them when they were a hundred and ninety respectively. Isaac was the child of God's promise. God had promised to make a great nation out of Abraham. And Abraham was worried because Sarah was barren, couldn't have any children. So she has Isaac after God's intervention. And now, years later, God says, Offer this miracle child to me as a sacrifice. And Abraham does what? He takes off to do what God had called him to. Make the sacrifice God has asked him to. He carries the things for a sacrifice and he and Isaac go up the hill by themselves telling the servants, basically, we'll be back. And then he ties Isaac up, lays him on the altar and lifts his hand to plunge a knife in him, willing to do what God had told him to. But God steps in there on Mount Moriah and says, Abraham, don't harm the child. And Abraham sees a ram caught in a thicket. He unties Isaac. Can you imagine that feeling? He unties him, offers the ram instead of Isaac at God's instruction. And what does God say about Abraham and his willingness to slay his son? He says, For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God points to Abraham's willingness to give up his only son, as the sign of His ultimate obedience, love, and fear of God. Now, fast forward to A.D. 33. And let's look at Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with Him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So God had looked at Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son. And he said, now I know that you fear God. And then in Matthew, we see that Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the centurion says, truly this was the Son of God. And what was going on here? Jesus was being crucified. Why was He being crucified? To bear the wrath of God for my sins, for your sins, for our sins. Not His own. He was sinless, perfect, the Son of God's promise. And God gave Him 
to be crucified, showing the Father's great love for us so our sins could be taken out of the way and so that God could have a relationship with us. Actually, the prophet Isaiah talked about God's plan for this to happen and he talked about it more than 700 years before it actually took place. Now listen to these words that describe what God did and why He did it when He gave up His own Son. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him, Jesus, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. For He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong." Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Did you catch that phrase back in verse 10? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So not only was God willing to give His Son up for us, but it was God's will to crush Him. God has put Jesus to grief. So not only was God willing to give up His Son for us, it was His will, it was God's doing, it was God's plan. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. And just to put an exclamation point on all this, Calvary, the hill where Jesus was crucified just so happened to be the very same hill, Mount Moriah, where Abraham tied Isaac up to sacrifice him at God's request. The very same hill. So he spares Abraham's son there, but gives his own son for us there. It's amazing. That's bigger than this tiny little puny mind can take in. God's plan, God's will, God's pleasure to not spare His own Son, but to give Him up for us all. You want to know how much God loves you, Christian? That is love. Love beyond anything we can fathom or fully understand. That is how much God loves us if we are believers. That is how great a sacrifice God gave to bring sinners to Himself. So if He gave His Son, His only Son for us, what else would He give us? The rest of the verse tells us, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all You see what Paul's doing here? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. In Latin, that type of argument is called argumentum a fortiori. You're welcome, all you Latin scholars out there. I know you're out there. And that Latin phrase means argument from the greater to the lesser. Argument from the stronger thing. Anybody remember Mikey? Life cereal? 
Huh? Anybody remember Mikey? Mikey was really picky. And actually in the commercial they said he hates everything. And the other kids were watching to see if Mikey would eat life cereal. Well, he liked it, and they said, he likes it. And Mikey's just eating the life cereal, brother. He's got it going on a conveyor. And they're like, if Mikey likes it, who don't like anything, surely we would like it. Because the greater shock is that Mikey likes it. So surely I'm going to like it. It's what Paul's doing here. God gave us the greater. God gave us His only Son, His most precious thing. I don't know what, what He called Jesus. Yeah, He was a person. He was God in the flesh. He wasn't a creation. Jesus wasn't created. He was born naturally. But God gave us what was most precious to Him. And if He gave us the greatest gift... His only Son with whom He's well pleased, His greatest treasure, His pride and joy, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He gave His best when He gave Jesus, so now we can rest in the truth that since He gave Jesus to us and for us, He will graciously give us what? All things. And I struggle with how to convey this. I struggle with how to take this in myself. First, God gave Jesus up for us. Now that's hard enough to understand, hard enough to convey. But then, how do I stand here today and look out at God's people and say, God has chosen to graciously give us all things. All things. What does it mean? What does it mean that God's giving us all things? We saw earlier in verse 28 that God is causing all things to work together for our good. All things. And here, God graciously gives us all things. But this thought of all things is not isolated to Romans 8. Let me give you some quick instances of when it's mentioned. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So, what had been handed over to Jesus by the Father? All things. John 3.35 The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there's one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Ephesians 1, 22-23 And He, uh, God, put all things under His, Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And that's a lot of all things, isn't it? And I could go on quite a bit longer, but let me finish with this one. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to convey this so that in the minutia of life, in the failings of life, in the successes of life, that I can look and say, it's all mine. And it's all graciously given to me by my Father who loved me so much He gave up His only Son so that I can be with Him and so that He can give me all things. All are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Do you get this? God in His grace and His love for us has given Christ to us. And with Him, who is the greatest treasure of all anyway, with that greatest treasure, He has given us all things. All things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Him and us, us and Him, we are Christ's, and Christ is ours. And since these things are true, by God's grace, all things are ours. 
All things are ours and all things are being caused to synergistically work together for our good. Now there is no way that I could overstate that. It's beyond comprehension. But I want you to ponder it. I want you to wonder at it. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to rejoice in it and ponder, wonder, meditate on and rejoice in the fact that God did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all so that in Him all things, all things are ours. My heart is just... Wow. What do you want? You want things to get easier? A little bit more money? Come on, God, a little bit more money would be all right, right? All things are ours. I wish we believed this. I wish we could grasp this. I wish we lived this way. We need to pray and seek God's wisdom and power through His Holy Spirit, who is ours as well, by the way. We need to ask through the power of the Holy Spirit that God would help us to know it, to believe it, to reckon it into our account, and to do the truth of these amazing words we've just looked. If you were here with us in the Romans 8.28 message, my question for that message was, what if this is true? What if God really is causing all things to work together for our good? What if that's true? How does that change how you look at your circumstances and your situation, your unemployment and your health problem? It makes you look at them and say, God, you're causing this to work together for my good. It's not easy. And I'm not going to yawn and say, oh, well, troubles don't bother me. No, they hurt. We suffer. We groan. But in the midst of it, we can say, God, I know, I believe that you are causing this to work together for my good. That's a whole different ballgame than worrying and fretting and biting your fingernails and hoping things might possibly work out a little better in the end than they look right now. What if we believed this? I wish we did. The Spirit can help us. What if it's true? What if this is true? How different would our lives be if we lived like this? And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't get it. I don't get it when things get hard and hurtful and... I still struggle for sure. You bet I do. Just being honest. I don't get the scope of these two verses in this chapter of this Everestish book. This God who has for some reason, for some reason has included me in His plan. Why? Got to jump ahead a little bit and remind myself what Paul writes at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Ultimately, all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. Ultimately, all glory is His. And in Him, we get to share in all things. Listen, church. In Him, we get to share in His glory. That glory that He said He would share with no one. He said, in me, all things are yours. I think our thinking is so small, we think one of the greatest things in the world would be to walk onto a car lot and somebody say, pick one. Anyone you want. We'll go get the keys and we'll write your name on the title. It'll be yours. We're going, (laughs) anyone I want? 
your desires are far too small, Christian. You want a car? (laughs) I do too. And I got one. So how do you apply this? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Sorry. Get you here at the dock and I don't know what to do with you. I don't. Some of you guys have been through hell. And I'm going to look you in the face and say all things are yours. God loves you. God's working it all for your good. Yep. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I don't know how really to apply this, but I want to give you four points pulled directly from the text. And I'm going to put them all up at once so you don't normally put lists up because people read through them, they don't listen to you. I'm going to put these up. I want you to look at them. I want you to read them. Four truths I want you to grasp today. Some of you are still thinking about the car, by the way. No. God is for us as Christians. No one can be against us as Christians. God did not spare His own Son. And He has graciously given us all things in Him. There you go. Now live like it. And and what does that life look like? How does this renewed mind process this and think rightly so that in the midst of the situations and circumstances and sins and failings and fallings, you remember this? How does that happen? And when it happens, what does the life look like that believes it and appropriates it? I think it looks like the book of Acts. Going where God sends us, doing what God is doing in and through us, having all things in common, seeing God move and change lives, resting in His all-powerfulness, resting in His unstoppable, unbelievable, all-encompassing and God-glorifying grace. What does it look like? I think Piper puts it pretty good here as we close. great promise of future grace, that grace is going to be there to meet us in our time of need, guaranteed in the logic of Romans 8.32 is that nothing will ever enter your experience as God's child that by God's sovereign grace will not turn out to be a benefit to you. This is what it means for God to be God and for God to be for you and for God to freely give you all things with Christ. You must believe this or you will not thrive or perhaps even survive as a Christian in the pressures and temptations of modern life. There is so much pain, so many setbacks and discouragements, so many controversies and pressures. I do not know where I would turn in the ministry if I did not believe that Almighty God is taking every setback and every discouragement and every controversy and every pressure and every pain and stripping it of its destructive power and making it work for the enlargement of my joy in God. The world is ours. Life is ours. Death is ours. God reigns so supremely on behalf of His elect that everything which faces us in a lifetime of obedience and ministry will be subdued by the mighty hand of God and made the servant of our holiness and our everlasting joy in God. If God is for us and if God is God, then it is true that nothing can succeed against us. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all will infallibly and freely with Him give us all things, all things, the world, life, death, and God Himself. And he finishes this way. Romans 8.32 is a precious friend. The promise of future grace is overwhelming, but all important is the foundation. Here is a place to stand against all obstacles. 
God did not spare His own Son, how much more then will He spare no effort to give me all that Christ died to purchase? All things, all good. It is as sure as the certainty that He loved His Son. I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know what else to say. Let me pray. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help our unbelief? We who have been bought by the blood of Jesus... Would you help us to know that you are for us? Would you help us to know that no one can be against us? Would you help us to know that you didn't spare your own son? Would you help us to know that you have graciously in him given us all things? And may we savor the truth of these words, God. May it change our thinking and may it change our lives. And God, if there are those who sit here this morning that do not know you, that do not know that you did indeed send Jesus as God in the flesh to be born of a virgin and to live a sinless life and to go to a cross and bear their sins upon His body as you poured out your vengeance for that sin upon Him? God, would you help them to know that He died and that He didn't stay dead, that He was resurrected to show that you approved of His offering and you received the offering for sin and said, It is sufficient. And that that same Jesus walked the earth for 40 days after that and then ascended into heaven where He now sits at your right hand and ever lives to make intercession for those who have put their trust in Him. God, would You speak the truth of the gospel to lost souls this morning? Would You breathe life, Holy Spirit, into deadness? Would You bring faith, the gift of faith, to those who don't believe this morning? And may they cry out, God's... God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, save me, a sinner. Thank you for Jesus and His all-sufficient sacrifice. And in hope, may we know, God, that you are causing all these things that you've given us to work together for our good, for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And may it change our lives, God. Pray that the world would never be the same because of the truth that you've sown in these people here this morning. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to Him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you, guys.